0: So hi team,
1: uh, welcome to the uh, welcome to the today's session uh, on uh, how to prepare for CISSP domain five identity and access management. So before we start on this topic, uh, let me give you a brief introduction about myself. So my name is Manigandan Arun Swami. I have around 14.5 years of experience. I have uh, done my CISSP and CCSP. I'm certified on both of them. And uh, I started my informal cybersecurity career in the year 2012. So I used to work uh, in IBM as a L2 tech support engineer for database activity monitoring tool like IBM security Guardium. So I have quite a good amount of experience managing database activity monitoring tools like Guardium, Imperwa. Then I have also also experience in SIM tool like IBM QRadar, onboarding cases, uh, onboarding use cases in SOAR. And also uh, I have worked on Splunk. So this is uh, apart from my CISSP and CCSP certification, I also have a CEH and along with that, some other infrastructure certifications like Red Hat and uh, Microsoft Certified Solution Expert. If I talk about my training background So I have around almost seven years of experience in the training industry Where I have been delivering corporate trainings on different tools like uh, Splunk Cardium, and SIEM solutions and also Imperva So this is pretty much introduction about myself Now our today's agenda is Uh, How to prepare for domain five, which is your identity and access management? So our course outline for this topic is for this module is we are going to discuss the authentication methods. So what are the types of authentications we have? Then we are going to discuss about access control technologies like you know centralized access control decentralized access control then you have your uh, single sign on what is user entitlement and access review and audit okay we are going to discuss about federation so when we talk about in federation we are going to discuss about uh different types of you know in federation what are the components like your trusted third party your cross certification your saml okay how the identity as a service. So when you use identity as a service service, what are the advantages of that? Okay, what are the disadvantages of identity as a service? Then we are going to discuss about LDAP or we commonly call as active directory. And then the last point will be the Kerberos authentication method how the Kerberos authentication works in a domain environment. Okay, so this is and uh, after we discuss all these topics we are going to have some questions So uh, where I we have some question on, question answer session So where I will be I have prepared some questions on these topics which we are going to discuss And we will also discuss the answers So that's pretty much about the course outline Now when we talk about identity and access management. So what do you mean? What is what do you mean by identity and access management? What is your identity and access management? So if you if we go by the definition your identity and access management, we also call it as an access control mechanism, which we use to uh, as a security disciplines, not just in the IT security, but the main purpose of the access management where we allow the authorized users to appropriate data and deny access to unauthorized users. Now, to take a, a, a very layman example for authentication, uh, identity, and access management, let's say when you book a flight ticket. So, let's say you are traveling from Mumbai to Coimbatore and you book the flight ticket in clear trip or makemytrip.com. Okay. When you visit the airport, What is the the airline crew? What is the first thing? The airline crew checks the airline crew first checks that whether you have uh, whether your name is there in their database. So let's say you have booked the flight ticket from Mumbai to Coimbatore. Then whether your uh, name exists in their database. That is the first step which they check. What is the other thing? Second thing. Once they have confirmed that the your name your name exists in their database. What is the second thing which they ask? They ask, "Can you please confirm your? Can you please provide your ID?" So your ID. So uh, when you provide, once your name is confirmed, that yes, your name exists in the in their database. The second thing the airline crew asks is your, "Please, can you please provide your ID?" So what is your ID? Your ID could be your passport, your Aadhaar card, your PAN card. These are the way by which you are authenticating. You are proving your authentication. Once your authentication is been proved then they provide you with a boarding pass where your flight details and your seat number. Everything is written. So this is the sim a very simple example where identity authentication and authorization is done now when we also the authorization is also provided with a compensatory control called as monitoring now when I say the authorization is provided with a compensatory compensatory control monitoring compensatory control what I am trying to say over here is that yes the boarding pass is given but there is also the airline industry, the airline crew also has a monitoring compensating control where they make sure that you are boarding the correct flight and boarding the correct seat. So that's why if you if you if you remember before boarding when you start boarding your when the boarding starts the airline crew asks for your boarding pass to confirm that you have boarded the correct flight and you are sitting in the correct seat. So like in an in another words, Let's say if your boarding pass is provided for you to travel from Mumbai to Coimbatore so. The monitoring control here. We make sure that the authentication the, the monitoring control here. We make sure that the boarding pass is provided for traveling from Mumbai to Coimbatore. So you are only authorized to travel in that flight. You are not authorized to travel in Mumbai to Hyderabad. So this is your a simple example of your identity and access management in the real world. Now when we talk about the authentication methods When we talk about the authentication methods, there are three types one is something, you know Something you have and something you are So now we are going to discuss in this So now when we talk about something, you know something, you know is your type 1 authentication So now when I say the type 1 authentication type 1 authentication requires your testing the subject with some sort of challenge and response where the subject must respond with a knowledgeable answer so like, like a simple example you want to access your gmail you just uh, uh, enter you went to google you entered your user id you entered your password this is a simple example of your something you know okay so now when we talk about something you know there are four types of passwords Which are there in something, you know, okay, the first is your static passwords. So basically, what is static passwords? They are reusable password which may or may not expire. Okay, now along with this uh, static password, you can combine some other forms of authentication like, you know, something you have or something you are. That is another thing which we will discuss in, uh, in the upcoming slides. But the static passwords are a simple example is you are entering your username in Google and entering the password that is your static passwords. Okay. The next is your pass phrases. Pass phrases like are long static pra- passwords which are comprises of words in a phrase or sentence. So when I say long static passwords, like I want to pass CISSP or I want to pass CCSP or I love Swiss chocolates. These are some simple example of your passphrases which contains long static passwords. The one-time passwords. What is your one-time passwords? The one-time password which we receive. By, uh, OTP which we receive while we performing a bank transaction or when you try to change any you know your UID. So let's say you are trying to authenticate your ITR with your other you get an OTP. Right, so your one-time passwords are normally used for your bank transactions and whenever you want to, you know, file ITR or tax returns and you are getting a one-time passwords from the UID portal. So this is a simple example of your OTP. Now, what do you mean by a dynamic password? in dynamic passwords? We have something called as RSA token. So in most of the organization nowadays, they uh, when a employee joins, they have something called as dynamic password. So like your dynamic passwords could be example of your Google Authenticator. Okay, or it could be your example like your RSA token. Okay, or your any uh, like your ping ID. Okay, these kind of uh, authentication apps are available in the App Store and Play Store where the passwords are changed every 60 seconds. So where you will be provided with a token. Once you enter the token, whatever password is provided that will be valid for only 60 seconds. So every 60 seconds the password will be keep on changing. So these are the four types of passwords four types of passwords which are there in something, you know now when we talk about the uh pa- type 1 authentication that is your something you know there are some kind of attacks which also is there in your type 1 so the when we talk about the attacks what are the types of attacks which are there in your type 1 one is your rainbow table attack then you have something called as a dictionary attack then one there is something called as a brute force attack so these are the three types of attacks which are there on type one so one common example of your dictionary attack where I am using you know John the Ripper tool or Hydra tool to perform a dictionary attack Right where I am maintaining a list of passwords In a dictionary and I am using that to perform the to try to find the password of a given username Okay, there is another form of attack, which is we call it as a rainbow table attack. Now. What does? The rainbow table attack does the rainbow table attacks works by doing a crypt analysis for very quickly and effect- effectively. So the basic difference between a rainbow table attack and a brute force attack is that your rainbow table attack works by doing a crypt analysis very quickly and effective effectively, unlike your brute force. So what what happens in brute force? in brute force attack. It calculates the hash function of every string present with them. So basically it calculates the hash value and then compare it it with the one in the computer at every step whereas the rainbow table attack. It eliminates this because it already contains the hash of a large set of available string. So this is something. So when we enter a password, so when you enter a username and password, the password is not stored in plain text. The password is hashed. It's basically a one-way hash function, which means it can't be decrypted. So whenever a user enters a password, it converts into a hash value and is compared with the stored hash value. This is how the password is stored. So what does the rainbow table attack does? The rainbow table attack tries to find the password by maintaining a list of hashes in their database. That's what your rainbow table attack uh, does. So since you can have more than one text which can produce the same hash. It will keep on identifying uh, it will keep on the rainbow table attack will try to identify the password for all the possible combinations of hashes which are maintained in the database. That's what your rainbow table attack does. Whereas what do you mean by a brute force attack? in brute force attack you have an attacker you have a command and control server where the command and control server is controlling a botnet of controlled devices and it is consistently performing fail login attempts to find the password of the web application so these are the types of attacks which are there on type one authentication that is why we say that when you want to have a more you know uh, if you want to combine the it is always it is always said that the type 1 has to be combined with either type 2 or either type 3 if you want to achieve a multi-factor authentication now this is your example of something you have now when we say something you have, this is a sam- sample this is a similar example of an rsa token where you will be having a pa- where you have you will be having a talk to- uh, passcode the moment. You will enter this uh, OTP will be pr- uh, a token will be provided to you, which will be valid for only 60 seconds. So these are like nowadays in most of the organizations they use this. Uh, there are a lot of apps which are available like RSA is there. Google Authenticator is there Microsoft uh, M- Microsoft Authenticator is there. Then you have something called as Duo authenticator. So there are so many. Uh, Authentications which are available now when we when we talk about in something you have Okay, when we talk about in something you have there are two types of uh, Passwords which are there in something you have there are two types of authentication. What do you? uh, uh, Mean by that there are two types of authentication in something you have that is your synchronous and asynchronous so there are two types of authentication one is your synchronous and asynchronous synchronous password means where it will be keep on changing every 60 seconds so every 60 seconds the password will be keep on changing in synchronous authentication in synchronous dynamic token token so basically it uses the time counters to synchronize a displayed token code with the code expected by the authentication server. Whereas when we talk about asynchronous token in asynchronous token, you might have in some, you know, banks like HSBC and all they provide something called as a a dynamic token like this device. So where you will be provided with a challenge. So once you enter the username, you will be provided with a challenge. Once you enter that challenge in the uh, a hardware token, which is provided to you. Whatever numeric value. This is displaying this you will input in the password to login. So these are called as your hardware tokens which are not synchronized with the central server. So every time a user wants to authenticate uh, whenever the user wants to authenticate the user will use the user will enter the username. They will be provided with a challenge value. Okay, Uh, and that challenge value. He will enter it into the hardware token that hardware whatever numeric value is displayed that he will enter it in the password to login. So this is your hardware token. So in something you have you have two types. One is your synchronous dynamic token and one is your asynchronous dynamic token. So this you can combine with your type one authentication and you can uh claim this as a multi-factor authentication microsoft authenticator will be synchronous uh any any app which you are installing in your mobile device like your android or your uh, ios that is mm-hmm. all your synchronous so where the token code will be changed every 60 seconds or every 30 <laughs> seconds they are all synchronous because they are using a time counters to synchronize a displayed coden which is basically synced with the authentication server the another third type of authentication is your something you are so this is basically your type 3 authentication which uses your biometrics so it can be your fingerprint it can be your face id it can be your retina scan it can be your iris scan so different type of these all types of authentication are there in something you are so what normally What happens in something you are so basically you have something called as an enrollment. So when you do the first time enrollment it scans uh, each and every extracts each and every piece of information from your uh, uh, face ID or your enrollment and then it extracts uh, that sample and stores in the template. It stores in the template. So the biometric sample is extracted and it is stored in the, the template against which uh, the authentication is done. So typically, when you do a first-time enrollment, the process takes somewhere around six to ten seconds. The process somewhere around takes six to ten seconds. So one simple example of this something you are could be your when you go to first time when you go for the Aadhar enrollment. So they normally they ask you to enter your your, they ask you to scan your fingers both hand fingers. 10 fingers. They ask you where they capture your uh, you know your fingerprint authentication or the another could be like if you are using your you know Apple devices. So in the earlier Apple devices you have something called as your touch ID which uh, uses your fingerprint captures your fingerprint data. For the authentication. So that is pretty much your something you are. What are the uh, types of something you are which we have? So you have something called as your uh, uh, fingerprint authentication. You have something called as your face ID. Then you have something called as your uh, signature dynamics. So there are different types of something. You are authentication is available. Now when we talk about something you are. Okay, in something you are authentication, there are three types. One is your FRR, your FAR, and your CER. Now what do you mean by an FRR? FRR means your false reject rate. Your FAR means your false acceptance rate. And CER is your crossover error rate. Okay, so now when we talk about a false you we can say that your FRR is your type one error. So where an authorized user is not acceptable by the system. So normally we can say so the day when you are getting late for your office that day your fingerprint authentication will not work. So normally let's say you are you, are, you have to punch. Uh, you have uh, your office timing is morning 9 o'clock. You have to punch at 9 that day when you are getting late that day your authentication system will not work so you are an authorized user but nor uh, your F- frr will not allow you to uh, get authenticated so that is something called as when an authorized subject is rejected by the biometric system as unauthorized that is something which we call it as an frr so this there could be multiple reasons for this so like Let's say if you are you are using your face, you are using your, you know, uh, fingerprint ID. So let's say if there are any, you know, scratches in your skin, the particular finger thumb finger, you are authenticating if there are any scratches. So there might be a reason where FRR will not allow you to authenticate. Or let's say you are driving. Uh, let's say if you are coming by four wheeler, normally you you are very comfortable. But let's say when you are coming by a two wheeler, let's say your hand is full of sweat. You are trying to swipe it. You're trying to get authenticated against the biometric system. It will not allow. So these kind of errors are called as FRR where the authorized user are not accepted by the biometric system. We also call this as a type 1 authentication. Okay, now what do you mean by your type 2 authentication type 2 authentication means where an authorized user. Okay. Where the authorized user is accept, unauthorized, user is accepted by the biometric system. So, what could be the possible use case where an unauthorized user can be accepted by the biometric system? What could be the possible use case where an unauthorized user can be accepted by the biometric system? What are the uh, types? available in this so let's say you have what are the types of authentication which are available in this. So let's say you are having voice print your voice recognition. Okay. Your voice pattern or your signature dynamics these kind of biometric systems. There there is a chance where it will allow you allow unauthorized user. Be accepted as a valid. So in movies you you must have seen specifically where they are using you know, this voice pattern biometric system. You can record the voice of the person and you can play it in a particular time which will you know fool the biometric system thinking that that is the actual user. So this is a sample of your far. So now one another thing which you have to uh, understand team. So what do you think? is FRR much better FRR is better or FAR is better. When we talk about information security in terms of security, which is better FRR or FAR. No, why FAR in FAR you are allowing an unauthorized user. So you are allowing an unauthorized user. To uh, unauthorized user is accepted by the biometric system. So FAR is a type 2 which is a more sensitive. So the far so if we talk about technically technically speaking, the frr is still acceptable where an unauthorized user is not accepted by the unauthorized user is considered as unauthorized. So frr is still okay comparative to far because in far it is allowing an unauthorized user to access the system. So here. So, now where, how this FRR and FAR is determined. So, let's say the more sensitive your biometric is. So, let's say if you are looking for more accuracy, you are looking for more accuracy, naturally FRR will increase. So, when you are looking for more accuracy, so one sam- simple example is when you go for retina, in retina, it looks for more accuracy. So definitely the FRR will increase when you reduce the sensitivity of the biometric system. When you reduce the sensitivity of the biometric system, the FAR will increase. So when you increase the sensitivity. FRR will increase when you reduce the sensitivity FAR will increase. So it should be the FRR and FAR should be equal. So this is what something. We call it as your CER. So the CER means it is the the lower the CER. So what do you mean by the CER? It describes the point where the FAR and FRR are equal. So which is called as equal error rate. So the low the more the lower the CER the better is the biometric system. So now uh, team tell me can we achieve hundred percent accuracy in type three authentication? Is it possible to gain hundred percent accuracy if I am using a biometric system? And what if someone is saying that we can provide you hundred percent accuracy? What if some vendor is telling you that they are providing hundred percent accuracy? then that is a concern because no biometric system can provide you hundred percent accuracy. So the lower the the cER it describes the point where the far the false acceptance rate and the false rejection rate is equal so in real to, in real world this will be 0 -1 minus -2 minus or let's say 0.2 0.3 0.4 this will be the value of the cer so the more uh, the the lower the cer the better is the biometric system so this is your types of biometric controls your fingerprint and retina so this is a sample this is a similar example where the first time when you you know in the earlier mobiles like your uh, iphone 6s iphone 7 you have this fingerprint authentication where when you enter your thumb finger it will extract more and more information so this is a simple example of your fingerprint and retina scan now, what is the, can anybody tell me what is the biggest concern in retina? Why retina is not used by most of the organizations. So basically, uh, retina is scanning your blood vessels. So basically if someone has diabetes, personal health information can be identified or discovered when you use retina scan. So you, you guys might be knowing that there is a, you know, uh, a standard called as hipaa health insurance portability compliance so whichever organization uses this biometric this regulation they will normally they they don't tend to go for you know retina because the problem with retina is your sensitive health information can be discovered so with the help of your blood vessel scanning they can identify if a person is having diabetes if a uh, woman is pregnant all these kind of sensitive health details can be discovered that is the reason why in some organizations they don't use the uh, Retina scan So in place of retina they use the iris scan. iris scan where, where it scans the eye pupils This is much more, you know reliable Than your retina because your eye pupils doesn't get changed frequently your retina can be changed so let's say if you are having a severe health condition. So let's say you are having diabetes. Your diabetes increases. Then naturally your you know blood vessels in your eye will change. So that will uh, this will also uh, amount to your FRR increasing because it looks for more accuracy in the retina scan. Whereas in the iris scan, your pupils doesn't change that much. So this is much more reliable. So another type of authentication in type three is your hand geometry. So when you you know travel to different countries like in visa in normally uh when you travel to places like singapore malaysia international airports they have this you know hand geometry as a control so when you uh, in the immigration counter they will ask you to enter your uh place your hand this is also one form of control biometric control which is normally used in immigration counters now the next topic talks about the access control technologies. So now when we talk about access control, there are three types of access control which is available. Okay, one is your centralized access control. Then you have something called as a decentralized access control. Then all you also have something called as a hybrid access control. So now in the centralized access control as you can see we have a us site okay the us site is having branch offices like india it has having the branch offices in india uk dubai and pakistan entire access control is managed from the central location from the central site so what is the advantage if you so you can say a centralized admin is managing all the branch all the other sites so the, a centralized control Is there which is manage uh, a centralized admin is managing all the policies procedures everything in all the other locations. So what is the Advan advantage if I use a if I use a centralized access control. What is the advantage? Uniformity is there. So we have uniformity. The power is limited to few professionals. So what is the advantage? If I'm using a centralized access control, I have uniformity. The power is limited to only few professionals. It helps to track accountability. This is one of the biggest advantage of using a centralized access control. So the centralized once again, I am repeating in centralized access control. What is the advantage? Comparative to decentralized is that a uniformity is there power is only limited to few professionals. It helps you to track accountability. This is one of the advantage of using a centralized access control whereas what happens in a decentralized. Now, what is the difference between a centralized access control and a decentralized access control in decentralized access control access to information is controlled by the owner or creator of the file. So one simple example in one line if I want to explain the decentralized access control is your workgroup environment so where you have 10 systems so in all the 10 systems are there in the workgroup a simple workgroup environment is a best example of a decentralized access control so where if you want a user a user requesting access for files and folder so the user has to request access from each of the data owner to get the access. So this is a simple example of your decentralized access control. So you can say your work group environment your you know, Google Drive. These are your decentralized access control. Now. What is the biggest concern when we talk about decentralized different data owners use their own method to classify data. They use their own access model to define everything. So basically there is no uniformity. So the basic difference between your centralized and decentralized is in centralized. You get uniformity whereas in decentralized you don't get a uniformity so different data owners. They have they may have their own way or their own method to classify the data. Okay, they they can use their own access model. So there is no uniformity. So this is a simple example of your decentralized access control. So think of uh, this like the decentralized access control will be normally used. So let's say we we take a we take a example of an organization. So the same thing. Uh, So let's say all the local access which are not sensitive. Okay, so let's say you have a local SharePoint you have a SharePoint uh, workspace hosted in a branch office. Now, you know that in the SharePoint workspace which are hosted in the branch office, They don't contain sensitive files. So maybe for providing access to the SharePoint workspace for the branch office, you can have a decentralized access. Whereas for uh, uh, let's say those uh, sites which contains a very sensitive details for those kind of access you can maintain centrally. So this kind of uh, you know mechanisms you can use. So this is what comes in hybrid. So in hybrid when we say what is we use a combination of centralized as well as decentralized. So certain aspects of the files which are sensitive. So certain sensitive files they have to be they have to request the access directly from the central location, but for local access like local SharePoint workspace or local websites which you want to access for those things you can uh, provide the access control from the local branch office itself. So I can say that let's say in the similar example let's say in the centralized access control i have a us site so all my critical access information is managed from my us sites but for all the branch for for all the other branches like india uk dubai pakistan okay the local access like giving access to a sharepoint workspace or giving access to a particular drive all these i can manage locally because they don't contain any sensitive data so this is an example of your hybrid control where I am using a combination of both the centralized and decentralized. Now the next topic talks about your access control technologies where we talk about single sign-on. So when we talk about a single sign-on the single sign-on it basically allows multiple systems to use a central AS. So basically the user has to authenticate once. Okay, and they can have access to multiple different systems but there is a thin line difference between a single sign on and a Federation. What is the thin line difference between a single sign on and Federation is single sign on works in one domain. Okay, so let's say when we talk about within one organization. So let's say I have a user. Okay, the user is authenticated against my LDAP server. Okay and the user is able to successfully accept website a website B and website C a simple example is once you authenticate with your Google account you are able to access your Gmail. You are able to access your Google Drive Google Calendar everything you don't have to authenticate again and again to access the services of Google. This is a simple example of your single sign-on. So in single sign-on we basically authenticate once and then we are able to access multiple system, multiple applications of the same organization. That is something which we call it as a single sign on when the same is done between different organizations. So let's let me give you an example. So now if you see if I uh, sign in in booking.com, it is asking me whether you want to sign in uh, with Facebook or with Google. right? So here I am authenticating with Google or Facebook and I am accessing the services of booking.com. So where I am trying to access the services from of different organizations when this happens between different organizations. So like you have a a booking.com. You have a Google dot you have you are accessing the booking.com services from your Google ID or Facebook. This is something we call it as Federation. So the Federation works between cross organizations between different organizations whereas a single sign on works within one organization. So when different organizations when you are trying to access the services of an another organization from your uh, user id from your gmail id that is something which we call it as a federation so that is a thin line difference between a single sign-on within an organization as well as the federation we will discuss the federation components in the upcoming slides don't worry and the another advantage disadvantage of the single sign-on is that It may allow an attacker to gain access to multiple resources after comprising one authentication. That is why we say that when you use single sign-on you have to combine with a multi-factor authentication like something you have something you know or something you know with uh, something you are. So this is the control. So when we talk about an organization of single sign-on it doesn't matter within an organization once you authenticate. It will be it it will allow you to access all the resources within that organization Okay, like an example here in this case booking.com and uh, you know your uh, uh, Google or booking.com and facebook or booking.com as an ibm So where there are multiple organizations are involved that will be your federation. It will not be single sign-on
2: Clear yeah so, uh-huh. uh, within within an organization uh-huh. i can have multiple uh, domains right? so, yeah go ahead within an organization i can have multiple domains Hello. like facebook uh-huh. uh, like facebook is having the instagram they are having the whatsapp right and then they are having uh-huh. a facebook account as well so yeah in that case uh, it, it would be a single sign or 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 a federation can you just repeat your question uh, are you able to hear me now yes yes so let's assume that facebook owns instagram facebook owns owns whatsapp and facebook is having uh, their own account as well so mm-hmm. uh, does it when i log into from uh, instagram so is it a single sign or on or it's a federation
1: it's still a federation because in instagram you when you log in it says uh, connect with your facebook account it's still a federation so, so like
2: in this case single sign on case, is a single single domain
1: single sign on is within an organization within an organization you can have different domains that's fine single sign on works within an organization so like in this case i can say in simple terms the single sign on let a simple example you are accessing your google account with the Google account, you are able to access Gmail. You are able to access Google News, Google Calendar, Google Drive. Do you want? Do you sign in again when you access all these Google resources? Once you have signed in, it allows you to access all the Google applications. That is the perfect example of your single sign-on. Whether it works within you, your now your organization can have multiple domains within the single organization. That can be considered. So, like I have news.google.com or I have your you know drive.google.com there might be possible possibilities that that there might be subdomains in the within google.com these are all your single sign-on but when we talk about two different organizations. So let's say does booking.com is owned by Google no right booking.com is a separate vendor or a separate organization, but I am accessing the booking.com services through my Google account. This is your Federation. Yeah, so let's say uh, a Google.com user is able to uh, log in in clear trip or make my trip to book holidays. So you are not you are you, you are accessing make my trip services, but who is your identity provider your identity provider is Google. So you are authenticated against Google and your make my trip is allowing you to access the services. So when we talk about two different organizations when you are trying to access the different organization services using your same domain ID that is called as your Federation. So now the next topic is your user entitlement access, review and audit. Now, what do you mean by in the user entitlement access review? Now there is something called as an access aggregation. So here when we talk about user entitlement access review and audit Okay, in the user entitlement access review, here if you see the life cycle of the user, a user is onboarded. This is called as a provisioning process. A user is promoted, rotate a user is getting rotated, they are getting tagged to multiple projects. So there is something called as an access aggregation. So what do you mean by an access aggregation? Access aggregation occurs as individual users gain more access to more systems. Now this can happen intentionally or it can happen unintentionally. Now when I say that this can happen unintentionally. So when a user is moved on to the new project. Okay, so this can happen intentionally as well as unintentionally. So when a user is moved on to a new role or a user is taking getting more duties or a user is getting a promotion in such scenarios the user may get more privileges than what it is needed. So let's say a user was working in project one later on the user moved on to project two or the user got promoted. Okay, so since the user moved on to project two ideally in ideal situations, the access of the project one should have been revoked, but since the access was not revoked. Now the user contains the access of both project one and project two. Now this is something which is a directly it, you know, if we talk about the control least privilege control, okay, it directly it uh, uh, violates the separation of duties or least privilege control. So and another term of this access aggregation is called as privilege creep. You must have, uh, you know, heard about this term. So that is the reason why we normally say that Uh, the best way to prevent this kind of access aggregation or privilege creep or authorization creep is that we keep on reviewing the entitlements. uh, we keep on reviewing the entitlements of the users which are provided. So normally you must have seen in the organizations. Normally, let's say if I am a manager if under me there are six seven people who are reporting to me and they have access to a particular sensitive application every six months once in every six months. I will get an email from ServiceNow or some other ticketing tool where it will say that this kind of access is provided to your users. If you want to uh, extend the access, you have to raise a ticket. Otherwise the access will be revoked. So this is a control where uh, in order to prevent situations like access aggregation, or privilege creep or authorization creep. We have to keep on reviewing the access of the users. So let's say the best control is when a user is promoted or when a user moves on from one project to another project the whatever access they have in the earlier project. It should be revoked according to the least privilege. So that is what we call as user entitlement access review and audit privilege escalation is basically an attack. This is basically I'm talking about to pre to prevent situations where a user is gaining more access than what is needed to prevent such kind of situations. We have you you should perform a user entitlement access review and audit uh, for all the users. So let's say if a user is working in project one later on the user moved on to project two. So it is mandatory that the project one access whatever access he has he or she has of project one should be revoked should be removed. They should only have access of the project two, because the more privileges the user if the user is moving to multiple projects. Okay, if you don't do that eventually authorization creep access aggregation and privilege creep will happen which directly violates the least privilege principle or separation of duties principle. So here the when the user is moving to when when you onboard the user, okay the provisioning process comes when you onboard a user so irrespective of whether the user is promoting it is you are getting rotated if the user is get, get, uh, getting assigned to new projects this access provisioning process is a life cycle it will keep on happening when the deprovisioning will happen when the user resigns on the last working day of the uh, of the user the access will be revoked the user account will be. Disabled so that is where your relationship ends. So in order to make sure that the user possess only least according to the least privilege uh, principle to make sure that the user only possesses the least privileges. It's mandatory that the user access should be reviewed. Every six months. Now the next topic is your Federation. So as I have mentioned in Federation, what happens? The SSO is applied in a much wider scale. So when we talk about Federation, there are three types of objects in Federation. What is what are what are those objects? You have an identity provider. You have a user and then you have a service provider. So in my case, I gave you an example of a booking.com. So when I access the services of booking.com I have an option login with Facebook or login with Google the Facebook and Google login. So in this case who is the identity provider? If I am getting authenticated with Google Google is the identity provider and who is the service provider Booking.com is the service provider. So when you access the booking.com service, you say login with Google it will redirect you to the Google uh, uh, authentication page where you will authenticate, you will enter your username and password. Once the authentication is done, it will provide you an assertion. The, uh, the IDP will provide you, will send an assertion which will be consumed by the service provider and you will be able to access the services. So, this is a simple example of a federation where we have an identity provider, we have a user who is requesting the services and then we have a service provider now in, when we talk about federation there are three types of way where we can do the federation one is your cross certification one is your uh, trusted third party and third is your saml which we will discuss so if you see in the second diagram you can see login requests they are using a wso2 identity server Okay, the login request is sent whenever the user is say let's say you are giving an option to authenticate by external IDP providers like Facebook Google Yahoo Twitter or Microsoft Azure. It will redirect you to that page you will authenticate once the authentication is successful. It will send an assertion the assertion will be consumed by the service provider and you will be able to access the services now when we talk about Federation components there are three things one is your cross certification and one is your trusted third party so now when we talk about cross certification what is uh, what is happening in cross certification each organization must individually certify that every other participating organization is worthy of its trust organizations review each other process standards and their due diligence the biggest drawback of cross certification is the scalability so where one organization is trusting another organization. So you know in the earlier. uh, So one simple example. So let's say I have a domain a and I have domain B. Okay, so now in this case I have a domain a and domain B. So in this case I am having a trust relationship from domain a to domain B. So that any any user who tries to log access my resources in domain a they should be able to access. So in the biggest disadvantage of this cross certification is scalability so let's say if i have three organizations like domain a domain b and now domain c comes so if the domain c is trusting domain b eventually it will access the domain a as well so one of the simple example i can show you over here so the best example of
0: domain XP sign in let me just show you
1: Normally if you see in the earlier version of you know windows we have something called as uh, You enter a username you enter a password Then you always have an option called as logon to where you will get the drop down of your domain So when you have a multi domain environment so let's say you are having you know uh, a domain one and domain two. So in this case, you can specify the username and password and specify the domain in the drop-down box where you want to log in. So let's say now you have two domains, domain one and domain two. Okay, now there is a trust relationship exists between domain one and domain two. So let's say a user from domain one, a domain one user, you know, goes to a different location. Okay, and they are trying to access their domain one resources from domain two. So what will happen the domain one the the user will enter the username and password in the domain two and they will enter login to as domain one. So the domain two controller the domain two uh, uh, active directory controller will send the authenticate against domain one and provide the access to the resources. So this is a simple example of your cross certification So in the cross certification each and every organization must trust each other to provide access. So the biggest scalability the biggest uh, issue of cross certification is your scalability. So let's say if I have three domains domain one domain two domain three now domain one and two trust each other. So now let's say domain three is trusting domain two eventually domain three will be able to access domain one as well because there is a trust relationship So, what is the and there is also the biggest risk of single point of failure so in this case if the domain two is down domain three will not be able to access any resources of domain one so that's why for each organization so let's say if you want to uh, establish federation in cross certification then each organization must individually certify the other participating organization So this is something which is not possible. That's why this option is not used that much widely. The another option is your trusted third party. So I can say that my certificate authority is an example of my trusted third-party model where uh, all the organizations. So let's say different organizations are there. organization one two three. They will trust they will trust the CA okay. The CA will basically manage the verification and due diligence process and the access will be provided. I am trusting a third party organization. Uh, So the CA certificate authority can be uh, is a best example of a trusted third party model. So let's say I have a domain one and I have a domain two. both are different organizations trusting the third party. So like when the domain one wants to access the resources of domain two. Okay, the the domain one will provide its certificate. So now before bro granting the access the domain two will c- contact the certificate authority to check that whether the certificate was actually provided by the CA if it is provided by the CA once the verification process is done the access will be provided. Now the next topic is your SAML which is again. This is also one of the important component of your uh, Federation. Now, what do you what is your SAML? So SAML is basically an XML based framework which is used to exchange the secure authentication data. So let's say so one simple when we talk about the language. So there is two types of languages which we have one is is your XML and one is your HTTP. So what is the difference between XML and your HTTP? Your HTTP is used to access to view the information whereas your XML is used to uh, authenticate the information or to exchange the information. We use the XML. So here your SAML is an authentication Uh, SAML is a protocol is basically a framework which is used to exchange the authentication data authentication and authorization data between different security domains. So when we talk about SAML you have three types one is your identity provider which makes assertion about another identity you have a service provider uh, which is providing the access to the service or resource and then you have a subject a user who is trying to access the service. So the authentication between different organization. Okay, so let's say your Google and your uh, uh, Booking.com. The uh, exchanging of information, exchanging of the authentication data, is done by the SAML. But when the authentication is combined with the authorization, when the authentication piece is combined with the authorization, then you use an another protocol which is called called as OAuth. So the authorization is done with the OAuth, but when we talk about authentication between a web based web uh, between two different websites of two different organizations, we normally use a SAML protocol, which is called a security access markup language, which is basically an XML based framework used to exchange the information. So here XML is used to exchange the security information whereas the HTTP is used to view the information. So if we talk about this diagram
0: as you can see. So the user
1: wants to access the particular uh, resource. So user is requesting the access the SAML IDP. So let's say in this case I have a uh, you know, I uh, I want to access the booking.com. Okay, my identity provider is my IBM. So in this case, what will happen? the the moment I try to access the services I will select who is my identity provider. My session will be redirected to the identity provider where I will enter my username and password. Okay, the username and password once the verification is done. It will send a assertion claim which will be consumed by the service provider and the access will be provided. So this is how your uh, in the SAML the authentication works. So now if you see the another diagram, this is a much more in-depth it is mentioned. So now here what happens in the SAML user tries to access a hosted Google application, which is there in the Google service provider. So now the moment here my identity provider is IBM. So now what will happen the moment the user will select authenticate against IBM. Google will generate a SAML request. So this is also your exam question who generates a SAML request. Answer is your service provider generates the SAML request. So once the your SAML request is generated, the user will be redirected to the identity provider and the identity provider once the user authentication is done. It will generate a SAML response. So who generates the SAML response here Your identity provider. So there will be an assertion or a claim which will be pro- provided by the identity provider. Now the next question is who will consume the ass- the assertion who will consume the assertion the user will consume or the service provider will consume service provider will consume the assertion which is provided by the identity provider. So the assertion or token to access the services of google it will be consumed by the service provider not the user so you have in this you may get your in the in the real exam you may get questions like they will not ask you the you know how the authentication process works and all but you may get questions like who generates the saml requests so you may uh, there there is also a possibility of uh, getting a drag and drop so who generates the SAML requests service provider generates the SAML request who consumes the assertion service provider will consume the assertion who will generate the SAML response identity provider will generate the SAML response. So this is the entire process of SAML authentication user wants to access a website which is hosted in Google. Okay, so the moment the user tries to access the website user will select the identity provider against which identity provider they want to authenticate once the identity provider is selected the Google will generate a SAML request and it will redirect to the SSO URL of the identity provider. So to, to give you a, a simple a simple example to, to give you a much more practical oriented example. So let's say I am here going to booking.com. and now I click on sign in. So now when I click on sign in and I click on Google, you see this. It is redirecting me to the Google. It will auto now in this case my automatically it is signed in because I have saved my credential. So automatically it will otherwise. Let me do one thing. Uh, Let me open the Chrome.
0: And uh, just a minute. So let me open it in incognito mode. Booking.com. So I click on sign in.
1: I click on Google. See, it is redirecting me to the Google page. Now, here the moment I enter the username and password, it will provide an assertion. That assertion will be consumed by the booking.com and I will be able to you know uh, access the services of booking.com this is the simple example of a saml is it clear
0: yeah thank my, you uh, assertion is like when you are entering your username password in the uh, where will you be using where will identity, you be entering username identity password?
1: identity provider when you enter a username and password you will get a saml response the partner identity provider once the authentication is success it will generate an assertion, a claim, a token, which will be consumed by the service provider. Uh, exchanging, see, exchanging the security information, we have SAML. But apart from that, we also have something called as open ID and OAuth. That is also okay. uh, something which is there discussed in the identity access management. So it's basically uh, 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 SAML is basically your authentication data is used to exchange, whereas your authorization depends on your OAuth so we integrate your saml with oauth so so normally you would have asked, you would have seen that when we you know access linkedin when we sign up for the linkedin it it gives us a notification do you want to allow linkedin to access you know your profile data your contacts this and that so that is your authorization which happens in oauth so that oauth and open id is also there in federation but that is something which is And not discussed in this uh, slide because we have a time constraint, but that is also is there. But majorly for authentication, we use SAML only. Now the next topic called is your identity as a service. Now in identity as a service, as we can say that with identity being required a precondition to effectively, we normally use to manage the confidentiality, integrity, and availability. So one of the advantage of using identity as a service is. That I can you know, so let's say if my organization is having multiple, you know applications multiple uh, uh, Applications they want to access so I can use an identity as a service which will be acceptable by multiple applications So in this case if you see over here, so let's say if I have identity as a service uh, Against my I let's say if I have an identity as a service for accessing my Salesforce. Accessing my Office 365, accessing my service now. So I have a requirement of, you know, accessing different kind of web services. So I want a common, you know, a directory, a common identity uh, as a service which can be acceptable by all different vendors. So in such cases, I will use identity as a service. But one thing which you have to remember is with identity as a service that it's basically as a SaaS. It's basically. uh, Offered as a SaaS solution. So uh, what is the advantage of using identity as a service? It base it quickly integrates your existing identity. So you can take leverage of your SSO with multi-factor authentication and you can access your different cloud apps. So let's say you have a requirement of accessing office 365 service now salesforce. Okay, these kind of uh, and you want a common identity uh, uh, method which is acceptable by all these different vendors then you can use an identity as a service but the biggest disadvantage of this identity as a service is again it's a single point of failure so let's say if your identity service is down automatically the users will not be able to access any of the applications which are uh, uh, the users will not be able to access anything hosted in the cloud so that is one of the disadvantage of identity as a service so there are there are many advantages of using identity as a service so one is you get single sign on you get multi-factor authentication you get access security you get directory provisioning all these you get so basically uh, where you have a requirement to integrate multiple you know third-party cloud hosted applications and you want a you know identity provider which is acceptable by most uh, third parties and you can use a IDAS the next topic is your LDAP. So again, this is something LDAP is your lightweight directory access protocol. So you have your LDAP require LDAP server. So you have an LDAP client which authenticates against your standalone LDAP server. So your LDAP server could be used for querying your directory service information. One common example of LDAP is your active directory. So your active directory is also uh, attend mainly it is being used in the organizations to provide authentication and authorization services. So it provides all the three components authentication authorization and accounting. So now this LDAP the LDAP could be there, it could be there on your uh, on-premises. It could be there on the cloud. But basically the authentication and authorization uh, uh, authentication authorization and accounting is provided by the LDAP server only. Now the next topic is the, the last topic of today's domain five identity and access management is your Kerberos. So now Kerberos is basically an authentication protocol. So now from the exam point of view there are there is only one thing which you need to remember. Team. Kerberos provides authentication authorization and auditing this could this this is your exam question also what so basically the only thing from the exam point of view what you need to remember is that uh, Kerberos provides three things it provides authentication authorization as well as auditing. So now when we talk about uh, your Kerberos, okay, the interaction. So there is basically there are three components which are involved. One is your requesting system or requesting user who wants to access the service. Then you have a destination server which you want to access and then you have a Kerberos key distribution center which manages and provides the access which authenticates your uh, request. So from the exam point of view, the only thing which you need to remember is that the Kerberos is uh, provides authentication authorization and auditing. However, to get a much more mean in-depth knowledge, I'm going to show you this diagram. I'll explain what does the Kerberos process does. So now in this case, if you see here, the Kerberos operation steps is defined. So where a user authenticates with the AS. So let's say the first time a user wants to authenticate, uh, what uh, the the authentication server, which is there in the KDC, will provide a TGT. So this TGT is a encrypted uh, ticket, which will be now how this decryption will take place. Once the user enters the authentication. Once the user says that they want to authenticate they want to obtain a TGT. The uh, KDC will send a TGT and the user will use its password to decrypt the TGT. Okay, the user will use its username and password to obtain the TGT this TGT will be encrypted which will be only decrypted by the password. So once the AS responds with TGT once the user obtains the TGT that is your ticket granting ticket. The user will provide this TGT to get a TGS to get a service ticket and once the service ticket is uh, obtained by the user, the user will use the service ticket to access the resource. So this is the entire Kerberos process. Now this entire now for some people this diagram might be confusing. That's why I have I have obtained. I have put a new diagram as well. Let me just show it to you. So this explains your much more in-depth what happens. So let's say a user wants to authenticate against this network service. So the user Sam wants to authenticate the your uh, AS authentication service. It sends a TGT. The TGT will be decrypted by the password. Okay, so the uh, the TGT is an encrypted is an encrypted ticket which will be decrypted by the username and password which the user will enter. Once the username and password is entered and the TGT is decrypted the user will have a TGT. Okay, so the user logs into the network uh, logs into the network to gain access. Now the user wants to access this particular resource. So the user will send a service ticket. Okay, so the user will uh, send the TGT to get a service ticket. So the authentication server will receive the TGT and it will the TGS will provide the service ticket. The user will obtain the service ticket and it will send it to the resource. So now this resource what this resource will do this will receive the service ticket this will check that whether the service ticket is provided by the TGS once the uh, the TGS confirms that yes, this is an authenticated user and the ticket is provided by the TGS only a client server session will be established. So this is the entire Kerberos process which works in your domain environment.